Ladies and gentlemen, and fellow golfers, for your entertainment. It's the Golf to Go Hour with Frank LaRosa, brought to you by the Hagen Oaks Golf Super Shop, America's most awarded golf facility. Nature Wood Home Furnishings, where it's all about choices and always about quality. Welcome into the Golf to Go Radio Hour here on Sackdown Sports 1140. Hi, I'm Frank LaRosa. He's Scott Marsh. Scott, we have a full pack show and not much time to talk to you about anything right now. <laughs> our shows go fast, but it's all about our great guests. So we have him today, Phil Dawson, the instructor of uh, Corey Pereira, a local PGA professional, just played in the U.S. Open, and you had a chance to actually see them both down at L.A. Country Club. Yeah, it was great following him around the course. What a great local story. And uh, it'll be fun to uh, to find out more uh, personally from both of them. Mike Schumann, who's going to be playing in the Gold Rush Classic uh, coming up in, in July at Rancho Marietta. Mike Played for the 49ers for uh, for a few years and uh, was uh, a local uh, television celebrity in the Bay Area as well. And he's going to tell us oh, a little bit about Joe Montana and folks like that and and uh, maybe even talk a little bit about the Gold Rush Classic, uh, which is a charity-based uh, celebrity am tournament coming up uh, July, uh, what, 12th and 13th, I think? I 13th don't want to and 14th, yep. Here we go. I knew I was close to it. Anyway. We we have more than uh, we can handle right now, so I'm just going to break here and uh, do a couple of messages and come right back with uh, Corey and Phil Dawson. It's the Golf to Go Hour with Frank LaRosa on Sacktown Sports. You are listening to the Golf to Go Radio Hour here on Sacktown Sports 1140. I'm Frank LaRosa. Scott Marsh is uh, beside. And, uh, Scott, this is going to be a, a really exciting uh, segment on the show. I know you just came back from uh, – from the uh, L.A. Country Club and the U.S. Open, and uh, we have some people that actually uh, <laughs> had a little bit, a little closer view than you did. No doubt, it's always great. The U.S. Open is truly America's tournament, and we've got uh, a local golfer who participated, and his stories, you know, just remarkable. And I'm looking forward to this. Corey Pereira is the uh, six-year PGA professional uh, local guy that that you talked about that. Uh, that played in the U.S. Open. Uh, Philip Dawson is uh, is his coach for many years, and uh, Phil, Philip is with the uh, Performance Golf uh, Academy. And uh, gentlemen, welcome to both of you to the show. Thank you. Honored to be here. You guys have uh, have a really interesting story. As I mentioned, you've you've kind of been together a, a long time. Um, Philip, how did uh, how did you? meet uh cory and uh you know <laughs> all of a sudden this good luck charm came into your life how'd that all come about um well i would say i was playing professionally myself and cory was the little kid at the range when i was home practicing i i played three years on pj tour canada and, and played six years full-time professional golf myself and cory grew up at the country club that i happened to practice at and so he was the little kid who'd be on the range you know asking to go uh play golf when i was home or We'd uh, practice and hit balls and stuff like that. And so, yeah, you know, our, I would say our relationship started originally when I was playing pro golf. And I I don't know that I would call it organized coaching. I would more just uh, give him some suggestions while I was home. And then, you know, when I quit, winded down my playing career and, and he was kind of revving up his, uh, I, I started coaching him full time. But I think I met Corey when he was nine. I probably started coaching him when he was about 12. Corey, uh, you were described as the the little kid that uh, came came around and uh, and kind of, you know, wondered what was going on there. And boy, uh, the description of you certainly has changed after uh, 
after the few years you've had on the PGA Tour and uh, certainly your performance at the at the U.S. Open. How would you describe that whole relationship? Yeah, it was. Uh, I would say I was probably the annoying little kid. Uh, <laughs> kidding, right? uh, and that kind of evolved as I think there was an understanding between Phil and I that I, I did want to take it to the next level. Um, and I was willing to put in the work and I was fortunate enough to meet Phil, another guy who was willing to put in the work and match my energy. Um, so our, our relationship evolved from there, both as a friendship and as a business, you know, and we started at a very young age and we both worked very hard and, um, he wasn't afraid to call me out at times and call me lazy or, Hey, you're not working hard enough. You need to be doing this. You need to be in the gym. You need to be eating better. And that's really what made us tick is, uh, you know, Phil wasn't afraid to be honest with me from a very young age. You know, anybody that uh, is interested in golf in Northern California has has come across your name at, at one point or another. You've uh, you've amassed, uh, you know, a, a pretty significant, uh, um, you know, bit of uh, tournament wins and and. Uh, uh, successes along the way. Tell us, tell us uh, when you started, what were you expecting, and and uh, you know some of the successes that you've had. Sorry, that's Phil. No, <laughs> no, that, no. That, that was for you, Corey. Oh, okay. Hey, Corey, that'd be a really short list if he's asking for my uh, success. <laughs> to well, yeah, hey, Phil had a good playing career too. Um, you know, for me, kind of climbing that hill, you just got to start slow, I think, right? And, you know, you start on the local level, kind of winning some tournaments, and then, you're, you know, your game evolves to the national level. And, um, you know, I think my whole career has been one big evolution, right, where you're just trying to get a little bit better each year, um, a little bit better in different uncomfortable situations. And, you know, really, it did start in Northern California for me, you know, with the NCGA and, um, you know, local first tee events. And, you know, it evolved, you know, to national and international events and eventually the U.S. Open. Philip, as, as a coach, you know, as as you're bringing someone along and you, you obviously recognize they have talent, um, success does not happen at every turn. What, what what are the secrets to kind of keeping someone's uh, head straight and keeping him interested? Obviously, Corey is someone that was really excited and, and, and wanted to stay involved. But, you know, at some point, we all kind of get down on ourselves. What in, in those moments, what do you do to kind of keep things fresh? Yeah, well, I think, you know, Frank, I've been fortunate to, you know, and really Corey was probably my second real student ever. I mean, he and another young man who, who Jake Johnson, who played locally and he has the course record at Hagen Oaks in the state fair. He shot 60 in the state fair. And they were really my first two students. And again, they were just the little kids at the range at Cameron Park that were my buddies that I'd go play golf with. Um, I'll be honest, someone like Corey, I, I realized at a very young age, you know, had a special gift. And so then it's really just, uh, I think like a lot of failed players, because that's what I am, you know, I wanted to figure out why I came up short. And for someone like Corey, who has more talent and potential and things like that than I probably had. Um, you know, you just share those, those mistakes and things that you would do differently. And also to get as good as I got, I did a lot of things right. So, you know, I've just tried to share with him my experiences over the years. Um, you know, really at about, I think he was about 15. He called me one night and was kind of complaining. He wasn't winning more. And, you know, I wouldn't say I would have agreed, but I, I, I just kind of told him, well, hey, I, 
you know, I don't know that you're working that hard. And so uh, a year later, he was a top 10 junior in the country. And, um, you know, his game was really starting to take off. I, he won the National Optimist Junior shooting 15 under by nine shots or something like that. And, you know, he really just started to take on this trajectory. So I'll be honest, to keep him interested, I don't think was really hard. I think his interest levels, uh, you know, like most elite players, he's a bit crazy at times and obsessive. And really, it was more um, just giving him a, a, a path of information and things to do um, and keeping him on task with, you know, uh, looking at his technique, looking at his fitness and, and his equipment and things like that, and just really letting his uh, talent blossom, so to speak. You know, so, I, you know, by the time he got into college, oh, gosh, I'm going to guess he can correct me if I'm wrong, but probably a sophomore summer or junior year, I mean, he had gone into the top 10 in the world amateur rankings. And so, you know, I mean, at that point now, as a coach, you start worrying about screwing them up more than helping them. They're so good. So um, that's, you know, been a fun challenge. And, um, but yeah, really with someone like Corey, who, you know, is a coach, you might, I've been fortunate to coach probably over a hundred kids that have played college golf at this point. And I'm currently coaching on 10 people playing golf for a living. So, you know, I've been really blessed to have a, a bunch of good players, but, you know, I would certainly put Corey's talent and uh, work ethic and determination at the top. Corey, you guys have been uh, associates and friends for a long time. De- describe uh, Philip as a coach and then as a person. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Phil's hands on with me and and that's what I want. Uh you know, Phil's not, like I said earlier, he's not afraid to call me out. And we have that understanding that um, we're friends, but business is separate um, from our friendship. You know, we can still go out and have a beer, uh, talk uh, sports, whatever, and have a great time. But the second we're on that course, you know, we're trying to win championships. And, you know, if I'm doing something that he doesn't like, you know, he's going to call me out and he's going to instruct me the right way. And I think our business relationship and our friendship is separate. And I think that is why we're able to be so successful together. All right. I'd, I'd, uh, you know, turn the, the, the other cheek and, um, Philip ask you describe, uh, Corey as a, as a player and, and then as a person. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say Corey's greatest asset, honestly, is his mind. Um, he probably has the highest golf IQ, meaning the understanding of the sport, um, that I've ever seen. I mean, it's really kind of, uh, when, uh, I mean, just a brief story on that. He was, I can't remember how old he was. I was counting for him in a tournament and he was hitting a shot over water. And, uh, I said, Oh, you know, I gained the yardage and he goes, Oh, Hey, you know, it's going to play about two or three yards longer because we're going over the water. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he goes, yeah, he's all, you know, the, the air density is cooler off the water and that makes the ball go a touch shorter. And, you know, so he's really got this extraordinary mind for the sport. Um, you know, I think we're going to probably shortly get into, you know, some of the adversities he's gone through. I think Corey was one of those people when he came out of college um, that, you know, a lot of people had pegged. He would have been already have played in a few U.S. Opens. You know, I mean, he was the, you know, he had such a good amateur career. And, um, you know, so, but as a person and friend, I mean, like Corey said, we've just been good buddies for a long time. Um, Yeah, I think there's a mutual respect for what he's trying to accomplish because I tried to do it myself. And like I said, you know, he has higher talent and potential than I had. And so I just want to make sure that he's honoring that as he goes. And, but, you know, like Corey said, it's not unusual for us to talk sports and other things. And, um, you know, we've just been good buddies for a long time and he's always embraced when I'm hard on him, which I think makes him easy to coach. 
Scott, it's remarkable that we had them both on the show today because I just figured out what's wrong with our golf games. We didn't take into account the air density over the water. <laughs> well, the talent factor might be part of that too, Frank, but if you <laughs> want to say the air density, I'll go with that. Yep, yep. Hey, Frank, he's the only person I've ever – I mean, I played pro golf myself. I've been around a lot of great players. I mean, when it comes to understanding lies and weather conditions and wind, um, he's got a, a bit of a prodigal – understanding of the sport it's it's kind of hard to to explain at some point i think i just get in the water (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's right we're talking with uh cory pereira who who just uh, played in the um, in the u.s open at la country club and philip dawson um his coach from performance golf academy we have so much more to get into you know the um uh, for the casual observer that uh, may have uh, watched the the uh, the tournament on television, it's it's just an easy process, right? You qualify for the U.S. Open and you play, and uh, you either make the cut or you don't. And uh, on Sunday we crown a winner. But uh, Corey, obviously, your story and how you got there is is much more dramatic. Uh, uh, Scott also was uh, happened to be at the uh, at the U.S. Open. So what I want to do is take a little break here, and when we come back, talk about your journey to the U S open and uh, you know, have Scott kind of chime in on, on what he saw down there and, and uh, you know, see if we can all make sense of all of this. We will be back with more on the golf to go radio hour right after this. It's the golf to go hour with Frank LaRosa on Sacktown sports. We're talking with uh, Philip Dawson, uh, instructor of performance golf Institute and uh, Corey Pereira, who just played in the U uh, S open Corey, your story about how you got there, you know, certainly um, was was extraordinary. Um, you know, most people are practicing all the time. Their games are sharp. Uh, you've had um, kind of a, a, a bumpy road getting getting to the U.S. Open. And I, I'm, I'm guessing that, uh, you know, being there was an incredible accomplishment uh, for you and for everybody around you. But tell us a little bit about uh, the, the issues uh, some health issues with uh, with your girlfriend and and your inability to to practice for a while. Tell us tell us what your story was and and what it took to get to the U.S. Open. Yeah, Frank. Uh, you know that's a it's a long story. Uh, back in October, uh, my girlfriend was diagnosed with a rare uh, and very aggressive soft tissue cancer, um, and from there, you know, I sort of made the decision to shut down pro golf for the year, uh, be with her and kind of see her through the rough next eight months that she was going to have to go through. Um, so from there, really, I shut it down for a good three to four months golf wise and um, was taking lead chemo appointments, radiation, um, you know, really kind of putting in 110% for her and, you know, nothing really left for golf. So, you know, kind of, I would say maybe March or so I started to pick it back up. Um, worked with Phil on some swing changes some things I was kind of deficient at the last few years and um, while taking care of Leah as well and you know really didn't plan on playing any tournaments and Phil kind of talked me into playing U.S. Open local qualifying and you know I was able to get away for a day or two uh, from Leah and went down to Vegas uh, just because all the California sites were full by the time I signed up and went down to Vegas shot two over on front nine shot four on back kind of figured something out um barely got in or barely got through local qualifying and was into sectional um 
well, then I got to get away for two, three days for sectionals. So went out to Columbus, Ohio, and um, really midway through a swing change, I'd played two, I played one competitive round before that on the whole year and went out to sectionals and 65 the first day and find, found myself right in the thick of things. So um, from there, I was able to play a really good solid second round of 70 and, and get through. And, uh, you know, I would say just my expectations were low going into the week. You know, I just, I hadn't played much golf. I'd practiced a little bit, worked on my swing with Phil, but, you know, really I was spending my time with Leah and her family trying to get her through this, uh, pretty awful diagnosis. And then you, uh, you, you tee it up at, at the U S open. And if I'm not mistaken, um, didn't, didn't Leah maybe uh, cut into her chemo a little bit to, to come be there with you? That had to be a, uh, that had to be really emotional and, uh, and exciting for you at the same time. Yeah. You know, she just went and begged her doctors and they finally caved. They said, yeah, you know, we can push it out if need be. And uh, so she was able to make it and yeah, emotional is just an understatement. I mean, I found myself in tears out there on random holes where I just, you know, I'm trying to compete in a U.S. Open. I'm up on tees like dreary eyed, which it was just crazy. Um, to have her there really meant the world to me after what we've been through. And um, our family's been really, really struggling, to be honest, for the last eight months. Um, and to see for her to see me living my dream out there. And for her to be there to support me through all this, through 10 rounds of chemo and 30 rounds of radiation, um, just a moment I'll never forget, to be honest. Oh, I don't know how any of us could could forget that. That that That's incredibly emotional and very touching. And uh, we wish her and you continued success. Um, Scott, you know, I don't know. How do you how do you react to a story like that? It's an amazing story, and I think that's what makes um, the U.S. Open just a game of golf so remarkable is that it's really everybody's tournament. It's not just about who ended up winning, whether it was Wyndham Clark or McElroy or Fowler, but it's all the stories for people getting in, like your, your, yourself, Corey. And um, I know Golf Channel, Todd Lewis, did a remarkable interview with you and your girlfriend that went nationwide and has become such the talk of golf as much as anything else going on. I just want to know what your reaction has been since playing in the tournament and then the, the feedback and support you've received from that. Yeah, it's been incredible, right? Just, you know, our, our local community has been one thing they've come together and uh, we have a special group of people up here in Northern California at Camp Park Country Club. Um, but really the national and international community really got behind us too this last week. So it was just, it was special to see people kind of accept and relate to our story a little bit and, and just those words of support. And um, yeah, it was just really cool to see everyone um, out there for us. Yeah. I had the chance. I walked part of the course with you. I, I, I'm sure you didn't notice, but I was out there for a few holes and I had a chance on Friday to, to see you uh, birdie six for the second consecutive day, that par four where you could decide to go left or right or go straight for, for the green. Talk about just playing in that tournament and, and particularly just some of the choices like on six when you were able to have such such success. Yeah, six is a cool hole, man. It's just there's so many different ways you can play that. And, you know, the, the pin was in an interesting spot where actually Phil talked me into laying it up left. I, I wanted to go for it. Just, you know, I wasn't having a great round and I kind of needed some sort of fireworks to maybe make the cut. But um, Phil talked me into the probably the proper strategy there. 
and uh, was able to use that backstop and and funnel the ball in close. And uh, man, I wanted to make that birdie. I didn't want to get shut out the second round. So uh, yeah, yeah, that was a that was a cool moment to get that ball in there close. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And and you had a great round on Thursday. Shot seventy one. You were hovering right around the the cut line. Obviously, the conditions were a little bit more challenging on Friday than Thursday in terms of the length that they played it at and some of the pin positions. Can you talk about maybe the difference between Thursday and Friday? You got off to it such a great start. Yeah, there was, you know, I, I thought Friday um, there were some opportunities for scoring. Um, uh, yeah. Like the great, the course was a little softer than maybe we anticipated. It was still really, really hard. I would say if you drove the ball in the rough, you were going to have a lot of nightmares out there and I can speak from experience on that one, but uh, yeah, you know, for, uh, Thursday I played really well, you know, I was able to, to hold a lot of 12 to 15 foot putts, a lot of par putts and um, you know, I kept myself in it and uh, that's really all you can ask for that first day of a U.S. Open debut when there's nerves and, you know, lack of uh, playing experience and, you know, all that stuff. So uh, that was a great round uh, to get started with. And, yeah, Friday, I just thought the course did play harder. Um, the pins were a little more tucked. course played a little longer, and I was probably a little more off. And um, at a U.S. Open, that's going to result in, you know, a few over par. And I, I think I shot six over. But, yeah, it's it wasn't easy out there. I think, uh, Frank, real quick, just before, you know, being out there with him and, and watching him play at sectionals and he's being super humble, but, um, you know, it's also the the pressure and stress these players are dealing with, right? You know, I mean, you've got U.S. Open sectionals. I can only imagine how he felt. I was carrying the bag and I was really nervous. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to play in that a few times myself, and I've never really had a great shot with six holes to go to qualify for the Open, unfortunately, and and he did. And it was, you know, how he handled that moment, I think, was really impressive and, you know, a testament to his will. And then I, I just thought at the U.S. Open itself, um, you know, we we got to play practice rounds with Max Homa and Xander Schauffele and uh, uh, Patrick Cantley, you know, and all three of those guys are top 10 in the world. And, you know, people don't really realize how close um, all these players are, you know, physically, you, you know, the day we played with Xander and Patrick, I mean, Corey's game looks they're equal. And obviously, you know, if you go back and you look, you know, uh, Corey and Xander were co-medalists at the California state amateur one year together. So, I mean, Xander's caddy Austin made a really cool comment to me where as a compliment to Corey he goes, nobody in this field is surprised Corey's here. They're surprised it took him this long to get here, you know? And I think that, you know, I thought that was a cool comment and, you know, from, for me watching him, it was also just, uh, you know, what he's had to go through this year to get there. Um, I mean, I told him if it had he, you know, he's played Corn Ferry Tour the last two years. I said, had had you played Corn Ferry all year and made the U.S. Open, I would have been, holy cow, what, a, what an amazing accomplishment. The fact he played zero competitive golf this year and was able to get through that thing and have a good chance to make the cut in the U.S. Open, I think speaks volumes to his talent. You know, I was going to ask you um, that we've come full circle here. You know, the the, the little kid that was watching you practice uh and you're on the bag there on the first tee at the u.s open what was going through your mind phil <laughs> wow um pride yeah <clears throat> you know obviously we're both so hyper competitive too i was trying to get into play mode quickly you know because i mean also uh, I know how good he is, and I wouldn't have been surprised at all if if he had had a great tournament and, and you know, finished in the top 20 or even made a run at winning, you know. So I was trying to get my brain in the right place. 
to get into, hey, it's time to play. But, you know, we did a good job too, especially towards the end of the second day when we knew, you know, without some kind of a crazy finish, we were probably going to miss the cut. Um, you know, he kind of said something like, hey, let's really soak this in, you know. And, you know, obviously our hope is he's going to be in a bunch of these things and, you know, that he's going to get where I think he belongs, which is amongst the best players in the world. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, how do you dream that big, right? You know, I mean, it's like really hard when these guys are little kids. I coach a bunch of them, you know, to really dream that big is amazing. Um, I had another longtime student, you know, was run up in the U.S. Amateur a couple of years ago. I got to play in the U.S. Open, the Masters, uh, Charlie Osborne. And, you know, to, to really see what those guys do is amazing. And I guess just to be standing there with them was, yeah, just a large sense of pride. You know, Corey, uh, we're running up against time, which is always an issue on the show. But uh, just just quickly, it, 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 you always re we always hear people refer to this was always my dream. You know, as a little kid, this was my dream. On the first tee, you know, when you were standing there on on Thursday, what what was going through your mind? Just honestly, exactly that. You know, I've been working for twenty years for this. Um, and this is honestly, this was my life's work, you know, to go play in major championships. So, um, yeah, just how hard Phil and I work and just, you know, how lucky I am to be here, um, to be doing something that I've put that much time into and just how excited I was to go compete and live out my dream that week. Corey, where do you go from here? What What's next on your, your schedule? Yeah, you know, I, I really haven't signed up for much. Uh, Leah's got two more chemo treatments and really want to get her through that. But uh, maybe I and a couple Monday qualifiers, the Barracuda Monday qualifier pops out uh, to me as an event. I, I'd love to get into and uh, and compete kind of in my backyard and um, and also working with Phil and completing some of our, our swing changes that we've been uh, that we started early in this year. And, uh, you know, we still have some work to do. And um, I want to get to the point where I'm playing the U.S. Open once a year. I think that's a great goal. Uh, I can't tell you how much fun it's been to have you both on the show. Uh, Corey, your your story is inspiring. Phil, I uh, appreciate uh, you standing by him all this time, and, and uh, your relationship is is uh, is admirable. Thank you so much, uh, Phil Dawson and uh, Corey Pereira and uh, Scott Marsh. You know, we wrap up another show here. Thanks, guys. Always great. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being on with us, guys. Appreciate back it. With, back with more right after this. It's the Golf to Go Hour with Frank LaRosa on Sacktown Sports. Welcome back in. You are listening to the Golf to Go Radio Hour here on Sacktown Sports 1140. I'm Frank LaRosa. He's Scott Marsh. And um, Scott, you know, we're going to our, our next guest. Uh, uh, how about this? He's uh, he's uh, in the Florida State uh, Hall of Fame uh, for Florida State University. Um, he's a Super Bowl winner. Uh, he's an Emmy Award winner as well, and uh, it's hard to find that combination in anyone, but we found it here in Mr. Mike Schumann. Uh, Mike played for the 49ers uh, and some other uh, National Football League teams, uh, was a Bay Area sports reporter on television and radio for so many years, and we've got him here today. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Doing great, guys. Uh, it's good to uh, be back on air, I'll say that. So. <laughs> Appreciate you taking the time. Uh uh, you are going to be here in Sacramento. Well, actually, you you uh, you, you live up this way now as well. But uh, uh, next month, uh, you'll be appearing at the um, at the Gold Rush Classic at Rancho Marietta, uh, which is a, a charity a celebrity am tournament. And uh, we have uh, 
a lot of people that are very interested in that coming up, and we're going to talk about that, certainly, and, and how people can get involved in that tournament. But uh, we'd be remiss without uh, without talking about, uh, I don't know, let's start with uh, with the fact that uh, you were on a Super Bowl winning team with, um, I don't know, some guy named Montana. <laughs> A few years. Yeah, that was, uh, geez, almost 40 years ago now, 1981 season, the 82 Super Bowl. And lucky for us, it was the first one ever played up in the north, and we got to go to Detroit. <laughs> so it snowed the whole time. Uh, I think they had a tour of Motown and a Cadillac plant for us. <laughs> that was the entertainment. And uh, so Joe was only in his third year. And wasn't quite a household name, Dwight Clark, who uh, inherited my job when I got injured. I always used to tease Dwight. And uh, guys who really weren't hadn't made their mark yet, but it was uh, almost fate and destiny written all over it as Bill beat the team, Cincinnati, Bill Walsh, that uh, basically blackballed him from the league. He was an assistant there under Paul Brown for years, thought he was going to get the head coaching job when Paul stepped down. He gave it to Tiger Johnson. Bill went away and uh, became the head coach at Stanford. And then, of course, with the 49ers. What an incredible personality he was. And as I was looking through uh, your teammates, uh, a local guy that went to to my alma mater high school, uh, Easton Ramson, was on that team as well. Easton and I, here's a great story. When Bill came in, uh, we were 2-14 and 14 the year before, and probably the worst 2-14 and 14 team in the history of the NFL, 1978. <laughs> I was a starter on that team, so that tells you right there. Then Bill came in in 79, and we were also 2-14, and 14, but probably the best 2-14 and 14 team uh, at the league's ever seen. So Easton and I were, uh, let's see, in our second years together, and we were the only – uh, veterans that had to share a locker, you know, that up and downstairs lockers. So we, I called it the duplex. And uh, I went on to become Bill's first starter at wide receiver along with Freddie Solomon. Eason uh, had come in from Denver, I think. And he was a backup to Charlie Young that year, I think it was. So uh, great guy. And he's kind of the prototype of tight ends today. A big guy who could run. I called him Sweet Feet because he just had these unbelievable moves into his break. And uh, so a great guy. He's overcome a lot of demons in his life, and he's turned his life around. So working with young, troubled children now, and uh, just a great guy. You're, as I mentioned, in the Florida State Seminole Hall of Fame. That's, uh, you know, how do you go from that, you know, sort of big man on campus to to being uh, on a on a 2-14 and 14 football NFL football team? What's What's that transition like? Well, uh, believe it or not, uh, my era at Florida State probably had the worst uh, records in the history of the program. We were 0 and 11 my freshman year, 1 and 10, 3 and 8, 5 and 6. So my class did not have one winning season. And Bowden came in uh, my senior year, and I was out. And then I came back for a fifth year, and we went 10 and 2. First team in Florida ever to win 10 games. So had we, and we had, I think, eight freshmen in my class played in the NFL. So we had talent, and but we just didn't have the coaching back then. But it prepared me to play in the NFL. We threw the ball almost every down. And when most teams were running the wishbone. So then when I got to the NFL, you know, I was ready to play right away. And that, that worked out for me when Bill came. So my second year in the league, I became a starter. 
So, uh, whereas if you played in the wishbone, you learned how to block, but really not how to read defenses, run routes, and that kind of thing. So, worked out for me despite the record. And uh, tell you what, two and fourteen was almost like a winning season. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bill Walsh certainly, as I mentioned, was was an incredible personality. Uh, what, what what was it about him that that was so magnetic that that made him such a great coach? Uh, he was. Bill knew exactly what he wanted to do. He was kind of the first that would schedule meetings uh, every every minute uh, of your meetings in practice. You know, we ran from drill to drill. We had things we did that he wanted to do, and plus had the West Coast offense, which we were spreading the field kind of horizontally, running shallow crosses instead of down the field. So most teams hadn't seen it, and uh, he knew exactly what he wanted to do, and he finally got his team, the 49ers, and he put it to work. And being an assistant all these years, he had a great personality, fun guy to be around, but uh, he could also turn on a dime. I remember he cut a guy in practice one day and uh, just got tired of him, fed up with him. He said, get him out of here. He said, get him on a plane. He says, no, put him on a Greyhound bus. Get him out of here. And all of us are kind of putting our heads down like, I don't want to look him in the eye because I'll say, get him out of here too. You know, So he could show, he could be a, kind of a player's coach. And then at the same time, uh, when he had to lay down the, the law, he could do that too. So you really wanted to play for him. He was so innovative, uh, smart as a whip. He didn't like to be called coach. He wanted you to call him by his first name. And I was a rookie with the Miami Dolphins and Don Shula. If you called Don Shula by his first name, <laughs> he would have cut you just for that. You know, Bill, it was hard to call Bill, Bill. You know, he's, you know, you call him coach and he'd look at you. I said, oh, Bill. So uh, he was quirky. He was, uh, everybody read the story. We went to Detroit. He was there early and he dressed up as a bellhop to receive us coming off the bus. So here's this guy. I was the second guy off the bus trying to grab my bag, and I kind of thought he's trying to make money off me. I just forearmed him away. Coming down to the meeting, John Ayer says to me, oh, did you see Bill in the bellhop? I said, what? <laughs> he goes, that was Bill. I said, oh, my God, I just forearmed him. I'll never get in the game. So uh, had a great sense of humor, uh, an unbelievable football mind, and he knew how to deal with egos, which is pretty much uh, the main job of a head coach at the pro level. Scott, uh, when you think about uh, those, those times and uh, you know, everybody has memories of that, 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 you know, from looking, looking in, it seems like it was a lot of fun, huh? Well, it had to be. And Mike, obviously you, you've been in the Bay area for so long before moving up to Sacramento. Uh, what you've been telling us, basically, if you hadn't gotten hurt, that would have been you in the catch with Montana pretty much. Oh boy. All right, here's a great story. Dwight, of course, passed away from ALS. And God, I think it's almost three to five years ago now. And my daughter went to UC Santa Cruz. So I would go down every Tuesday. We'd have these lunches with Dwight and then before he moved up to Montana. And uh, one of the lunches, he kind of had this forlorn look, you know. And I said, what's going on? He goes, I got to tell you something. In that last drive, we were running in and out of the game. And we had these little signals, a wide receiver. So... Uh, the two plays before the catch, we ran the same play to the other side, and, and Joe overthrew Freddie Solomon by 10 feet. It is, Freddie should have been the hero, to tell you the yeah. truth. And Joe, we had six turnovers in that game. People yeah. don't remember that. You know, who wins an NFC title game with six turnovers? Mm -hmm. Three interceptions, three lost fumbles. 
So uh, called a timeout, and then Dwight just ran in the game. There was no signal or anything. I said, what time? He said, I got it. I got it, Shuey. So okay. So I went over there. But uh, he makes the most iconic catch in the history of the NFL. Go, we go on, thanks to Eric Wright grabbing Drew Pearson by the collar at the last minute, uh, to our first Super Bowl. There's nothing like the first time you do anything. So he tells me the story. He says, that could have been you. I said, you know what, Dwight? Fate has a way of, you know, working himself into sports. Had I missed that catch, <laughs> I'd have never worked 40 years in the Bay Area as a sportscaster because <laughs> they had ran me out of town. Whereas you make the uh, most iconic catch. And I had Freddie Belitnikov and Dwight to a golf tournament once. And I finished with Freddie. And Freddie goes, is he still milking that one catch? <laughs> you know, and Dwight, yeah, Dwight's yeah. Caught, caught over 500 balls. But he took a beating. And uh, yeah. he was a young kid out of Clemson. You know, Bill went to uh, look at his quarterback. I think it was Fuller was his name. I can't remember his first name. Yeah, Steve, Steve Fuller. Fuller. Steve Fuller. And he, they needed a receiver. So Dwight came out. And Dwight reminded Bill of Chip Myers, who he had in Cincinnati. Chip was 6'5", kind of too light to play tight end, and, uh, but a big target at the split-end position. And he had Isaac Curtis. So he, Chip and Isaac, and that's what he ended up with Dwight and Jerry Rice. So, because uh, Dwight also, he only caught like 10 passes in four years at Clemson. He was raw, yeah. but 6'4", 210, was kind of the new prototype of that bigger receiver and uh, – so, yes, uh, in the back of my mind, I always thought, you know, did Dwight just run in the game? And yep. then he finally admitted it to him because it was just tearing him up inside. <laughs> so, Could have been you, Mike. Could have been you. Uh, you mentioned about uh, Fred Bolitnikoff, and, of course, you know, he's a Florida State guy as well. The collegiate wide receiver award of the year is named after him. Just can you talk about your relationship with him? He's he's from our area as well. Right. He's up in Roseville. and. Uh, he just was back. They, uh, he's from Erie, Pennsylvania. They just dedicated a stadium to him, a high school stadium. Uh, he was down in Florida for a, a golf tournament in Tallahassee. So he's been on the road. And uh, Bobby Bowden was his receiver coach in 64, I think, at Florida State. Then Bobby became my – so Bobby compared me to Blitnikoff. And actually everybody did when I got there. Same height, same build, same kind of game. And Freddie and I got to work together with the Oakland Invaders of the USFL. Yeah. Freddie was a receiver coach. Uh, I had just retired. He called me and asked me if he wanted to play one more year. He had, we had Anthony Carter, Derek Holloway, Gordon Banks. All three went on to the NFL. And uh, so finally got to work with him. It was great. We just had the best time. But I always said to him, you ruined my life. Because what are you talking about? I got, I got compared to you my entire life. You're the Super Bowl MVP. You're the face of the Oakland Raiders. You know, how do I top that? You know, so, uh, but we're dear friends. Uh, we used to play golf a lot more. I think Freddie just turned 80. Yeah. And uh, so a great guy. Uh, there was nobody like him, you know, in his era. You know, a lot of, quote, white receivers. But he had a little Barishnikov in him. He just, you know, in the course of the stick him. I said, as good a hands as you had, <laughs> you know, and then Lester Hayes, the cornerback, yeah. had it all over. And Lester would tackle you, and then you'd have the stuff all over you, you know. <laughs> so you're sticking everywhere. It was just – it made the whole game nasty. So thank goodness they got rid of it. So, uh, But one of the greatest uh, players in the history of the game. Yep. Just a great guy and uh, really relates to the uh, common person who – 
who hasn't played the game and uh, just one of my favorite all-time people. We're talking with Mike Schumann, who uh, played wide receiver for the uh, 49ers and uh, certainly went on to uh, to be in the Bay Area with uh, tele- radio and television for so many years. Uh, Mike, um, you know, there's the best athlete, there's the best teammate and all of that. What in, in whether your experience is either playing or or when you were on television, which which athlete? And I don't know if you this is a fair question. Was there one athlete that kind of stood out above all the others that made an impression on you, not only for his ability, but also as a person? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, because in high school, if you played at the pro level, in high school, you were better than everybody. College, you were still probably better. Then once you get to the NFL, everybody up there is as good as or better than you. And that was kind of the first time for a lot of us that, you know, like, wow. I can remember I was a rookie with the Dolphins. I came off a line of scrimmage in the first preseason game. Everybody was moving so fast. I literally stopped in my first step. I just went, oh, my God. And that's when I realized that, boy, everybody up here can play. But in terms of just great athletes, uh, I tell you, Joe was a great athlete. He was a great basketball player in Montana. Uh, and decided to go football, even though he had some uh, tough time at Notre Dame. A lot of the coaches wouldn't commit to him, and uh, finally his senior year. And uh, but almost every player, I always say the wide receivers are the best skilled position. You know, DBs are just wide receivers with no hands. Um, <laughs> quarterbacks, you know, yeah, they're usually the best players in high school and college, but in the pros, it's a whole different act. So. Uh, but Joe was a great, you know, Jerry Rice. It's funny, though. Jerry Rice, Roger Craig, couldn't play a lick of basketball. We had, like, a celebrity team. We'd go around and play high schools, this, that, and the other. I, just Neither one of them could play a lick of basketball. <laughs> Roger was a great hurdler in track. Jerry ran track himself. but uh, So it was just funny. I always thought I was – if we had a little, uh, you know – what do you call it? Uh, decathlon with mm-hmm. 10 different events. I would win almost every guy I matched up against. Yeah, I could play football, but I could also play hoops, a good golfer. I could play tennis. So, uh, uh, but everybody up there, Roger Worley, a defensive back with the Cardinals, unbelievable athlete, could run backwards as fast as I could run forward. He huh. and Mike Haynes, I think, both ran four, six, 40s backpedaling. Wow. wow. Well, you That's mentioned Jerry Rice, and, and obviously he's a he's a mainstay up at the celebrity tournament in Tahoe. What what kind of stick are you in comparison to uh, Mr. Rice? Um, well, I'm gonna say I'll beat Jerry every time. You know, so <laughs> I played in that event first, maybe three or four years, and then I got a job and had to work. Couldn't work, uh, play on the weekends. So now I had Jerry up to my tournament, and I'm out on a hole the whole time, a par three, and you try to beat me. And you bet whatever you want against me. If you beat me, you win twice the, the amount. So Jerry comes up to my hole, and I said, uh, close to the pen, I said, no, nah, let's do a long drive because we were over a lake. So uh, we did it at the same time. There was about eight guys on the tee box so they could see where they splashed. So I, I outdrove him, and I'm probably 10 years older than Jerry. So we did it for 100 bucks, whatever. And he's, okay, I'll get you when we get in. So we get in. I said, dude, where's my money? No, this, this is another typical thing with athletes. Yeah. Um, and he said, I'll get you, I'll get you. So he never got me. All right. So he owes me a hundred bucks. So I'm playing in an event in Palo Alto, which is his home club. And I needed a glove. And so I went downstairs to the pro shop and a female pro. And 
I said, oh, she goes, well, it's member only. We don't take cash. I said, put it on Jerry Rice's tab. And she goes, I can't do that. So I told her the background of the story. I'm going to have some fun with him. <laughs> so the next month I see him. I said, hey, man, did you have a, a charge on your account at the golf? He goes, was that you? I said, yeah, now you only owe me 80 bucks. <laughs> 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 and he still hasn't paid me that. Uh, of course so not. Frank Gore and I, every year he went to Miami, Florida State. We yeah. bet on the game. He still owes me money from uh, <laughs> the run at Florida State has. So, but Jerry's a great guy, and he got into golf like most of us when our career's over. Mm-hmm. You need something to compete with, mm-hmm. and uh, golf turns out to be it for a lot of celebrity athletes. Yeah, great, great stories. Mike uh, is going to be uh, playing in the Gold Rush Classic Celebrity Tournament at uh, Rancho Marietta, July thirteenth and fourteenth. And and quite frankly, listeners have a, an opportunity to play with him. Uh, or with O.J. Anderson, Jim Brown, uh, Rod Martin, uh, Mike Merriweather, Greg Ostertag. How about Reggie Theus, Kenny Thomas, Greg Vaughn? Uh, all of these celebrities will be getting together at uh, Rancho Marietta to uh, to raise some money for charity and provide a, a great opportunity for uh, for people to have some fun, listen to some stories, and, and get involved. And uh, there are still blank st- uh, spots available at uh, Gold Rush Classic dot com mike I'm, I'm sure you play in a lot of these what what is it about the gold rush classic that that makes it so much fun and and raises so much money for charity well you know i had played in it years and years ago and then they came up here and john jacobs the promoter an old friend kind of got in touch with him uh, looking to do some mc work and uh, told brought me up to the uh, tournament last year i couldn't go the previous year so but I think what makes it unique is, of course, the course is a great course. That's where I play normally. And uh, a lot of tournaments will just have NFL players, you know, or just NBA players. This tournament has in, uh, Major League Baseball, NBA, and NFL players. So it's fun for we, quote, celebrities. Uh, I consider myself a D-list because um, we love to talk trash. And that's what you miss the most about playing at the pro level is in the locker room, the camaraderie. So uh, I had Pete Shaw come up to me, old safety with the uh, Chargers. He goes, Mike Schumann. And I couldn't quite place him. He goes, you're the only, uh, what was it? Some the only brother to catch a touchdown on me, something, something, something. And, uh, and then it hit me. I went, oh, Pete Shaw, San Diego Chargers. You know, so you just, it's a lot of fun to reminisce, number one, to give each other a lot of grief. Because, uh, like, for instance, basketball players, with their height, they're a little, it's a little more difficult with them with golf. Hockey players are great in golf because that's their normal swing. Pitchers in baseball because uh, they only pitch every four days. And uh, so it's just a great event. Uh, it's really well done. Uh, they have a draft for all the people playing in it that you can draft whoever you want to to play with. So last year, you know, a couple of us have been out of the league for 40, 50 years. Nobody's going to remember us. So it was funny to see, you know, professional athletes concerned that they might not get drafted. <laughs> you know, by, so I can't remember the kid from the A's. He goes, shoot, shoot, nobody's in. I said, don't worry, man, you'll get drafted. So, and John sets it up that if not, you know, the uh, big sponsor pays for it and this, that, and the other. So, but it's just funny to see the most confident guys, athletes, Showing insecurity, it's almost like draft day again, you know, yeah. uh, not getting drafted. So uh, just a lot of fun, a lot of camaraderie, hole-in-one contest. And even if you don't play, you can come out and watch and get rub shoulders with some of these players. So 
it's uh there's some there's a vibe about it that uh matches no other one that i've played it so i'll just say that about it july uh, 13th and 14th at rancho mirror to the gold rush classic and as i said if you want to play uh, go to goldrushclassic.com uh, Mike, I can't uh, thank you enough. Uh, I wish we had more time for some of these stories. We just have to have you back on the show or go play some golf with you, one or the other. I'd love to come back. Uh, you know, I tell people I'm a great fourth in golf because not only did I play in the top level, I won a Super Bowl, and then I covered three Giants World Series, four Warriors Championships, Sharks in the Stanley Cup, you know, so uh, I've just got a lot of stories as a result. So I'd love to come back and join you guys. Look forward to uh, to meeting you in person at Rancho Marietta. And uh, thanks much for your time today. This is the uh, golf to go radio hour on Sacktown Sports, 1140. This wraps up another week. Appreciate you being with us, Scott Marsh and Frank LaRosa. We'll see you next time.